people, hello and welcome to Blockchain Insider. I'm Mauricio Magaldi, Global Strategy Director for Crypto at 11FS, and this is episode 192. I'm joined by my co-host, the amazing Kai Sheffield, head of crypto at Visa. Kai, good to see you today. How are you doing? I'm fantastic. Excited to learn another deep dive with some great guests today. Absolutely. So today's show is a very exciting case study on smart tokens. According to CoinMarketCap's definition, smart tokens are simply regular tokens that not only transmit value, they contain also the information needed to execute a transaction simultaneously. While that's accurate, we feel like they are so much more, and that is why we want to take a deep dive into this topic with some incredible guests. Join us while we take a look at what exactly smart tokens are, how they came along, how they work, and what they mean for Web3. For this, we welcome to the show Cam Thompson, Web3 reporter at Coindesk. Welcome to the show, Cam. Great to have you today. Excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Really looking forward to having this conversation. Cool. And another welcome to the show to Matthew Sweezy, advisor and investor, former co-founder at Salesforce Web3 Studio. This has been a long time in the making, Matt. Uh, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? Doing great. Glad to be here. Cool. So before we dive in, just as a reminder to our listeners, the views or opinions of our panel are their own and don't necessarily reflect those of the companies that they're representing. And as always, nothing we say should be taken as tax, financial, or legal advice. So go do your own research. Let's get started. So we're going to take a little bit of a look in what's the deal with smart tokens and jump in and start covering the foundation of it. So I'm going to start with you, Matt. What's the process of coming up with that particular construct? which is rather unique in the world of Web3. Yeah, the smart token concept. So uh, there's a company called Smart Token Labs that has been pioneering this technology since 2017. Um, and it really starts with the idea of really what is tokenization? And that is the idea of tokenization and how that is different from securitization, where tokens become the integration points of the next web. And so since 2017, they've been building lots of different technologies to really enable these tokens to become smart. And I think if you just take a step back first and say, not just how did they get there, but a, a really simple concept and definition between the two, think of a regular token as a currency or a collectible, right? Fungible being currency, non-fungible being a collectible, can, can transfer users' rights and owners' rights. In that comparison, a smart token is really more of an application. It can be both currency and a collectible, but it goes beyond to become a mini dApp in and of itself, really pulling all of the functionality of the smart contract to any application. And that really unlocks the next wave of tokenization where we can now start to actually really get into things of, my mom's not gonna crypto, she doesn't want cryptocurrency, but she may end up with an airline smart token that unlocks a totally new travel experience for her and she never knows it's Web3. So that's just quick of how we got here. I like the she, she'll never know this is Web3 because we, we need to, to just hide uh, from, from the jargon. So, so Cam, you cover a lot of these uh, specialty tokens. Let's call them specialty tokens on the work you do with uh, Web3 um, at Coindesks. Um, how does it map out to the things you've seen uh, in terms of this token world? Absolutely. So I think that lately in the crypto world over the past, I would say year or so, you know, post bear market really ensuing last summer, and especially after FTX, you know, in this post-FTX world that we're living in, a lot of people are changing the conversation around crypto and, you know, not looking at it as much as money or, you know, securitization, but actually thinking about utility and how some of these 
technologies can really power new types of use cases and solve real-world problems that exist in Web 2 with Web 3. So I've seen that a lot. I think NFTs are a great example. You know, there are some smart NFTs out there that are implementing this type of technology and a lot of other different types of ways in which, you know, you can provide real utility to these assets and, you know, making it a dApp. You know, it's something I love that Matthew just said, you know, having you know, his mom use a airline ticket that's an NFT or some type of token that has that utility behind it, you know, whether it be being able to board first class or get an extra drink on the flight. There are so many different ways that people can actually leverage these beyond just having it be something of monetary value. Kim, can I just ex- expand that? Because I just want people to really understand the breadth of what is possible. It's not just simply that we have an NFT and then you can show something and you get an extra thing, right? It's, that's a simple token gate. I have token, you give me something of value. If we take this travel experience example and we have a smart token in the middle of this, we go far past anything we've had. And I think this is what is really revolutionary and hard for a lot of us Web3 insiders to really grasp because it's so radically different. So if we were to think about this idea of a smart token, let's just take scenario. Delta Airlines issues a regular ticket and they use their regular ticketing system. On top of that, they issue a smart token. Now that smart token, number one, can be frictionless, meaning it doesn't have to live in a wallet. It could actually be an off-chain token, such as an attestation, or it could be an on-chain token depending. So number one, we've solved the friction issue for the consumer. Consumer now gets this directly to their email or directly to their Apple wallet. So step one is we've already bypassed the friction issue. The next is the function issue. And we say, what can this thing do functionally? Yes, it can totally be a proof of authenticity. It can say, yes, I have this premium ticket. Give me my free drink at the bar. But it can go so much further. Imagine this, right? So look at every travel experience. If you go to delta.com, you go to united.com or American Airlines, and you go to complete your ticket purchase, what do they do at the end of that ticket purchase? They say, do you want to sign up and get your car rental? Do you want to get your hotel rental? No, no, I don't. I don't want to do that in the same scenario. They're trying to make sure that they can control the travel experience, but that's a centralized methodology. There's only one or two things that they can integrate because of how hard integrations are, and they only have one or two options. And no one, let's just do a quick panel. Does anyone on this call book their car or hotel in the same airline experience on the airline website? Nope. No. Typically no. at that point, I'm so ready to be done with the website. I'm just like, right. great, I have my ticket. <laughs> Let's go. Let's fly somewhere. Right. So we want to go, we want choice, right? So I'm going to go to Airbnb. I'm going to go to Toro. I'm going to go to find all these different services and compare. Now, what if that token could now then be composable in those other sites? The example, I've got my airline token and now I go to Airbnb. I connect my token to Airbnb. Now they automatically know all of my dates of travel. They also know the service and level of travel. So now if Delta and Airbnb have already gotten together and had a partnership and say, hey, listen, if you're a platinum flyer, I'll automatically give you 10% off. Or even think about the reverse. Think about if now a booking site says, if you book with me, I'll pay to upgrade your ticket. And that can all be done bi-directionally through that smart token. So you now have an entirely new world of functionality, right? Then go even further and say, all right, now I've booked a hotel, I've booked a car, and they've already upgraded my ticket for me because I used the service and it's all composable and decentralized. I'm using the services where I want. And now what happens when my flight's delayed? Because we have that central point of integration, all those other parties can automatically be notified that my flight has been delayed and everything can automatically be rebooked. So we really move past this idea of just proof of ownership of something in a simple token gate to very advanced functionality of the next web. Right, absolutely. Starting, taking a step back, when you create a normal token today, it is managed 
effectively by a smart contract. So you deploy a smart contract that says, I want to create a thousand NFTs, and then individuals can hold those NFTs. You could update that smart contract. You could update you know, the metadata you know, around those NFTs, depending upon what the rules are. And so is the way to think about this, it's like one step further of instead of one smart contract that manages a thousand NFTs that are all based upon the same rules of that one contract, it's each NFT is effectively a contract itself that has more complex logic that you can program, that you can update, that you can do a lot too. Or you know, can, can you help bridge between, I understand a normal token, I think, now the added functionality that this has, is it just more complex logic in each token versus one contract managing many tokens? It's a great question. And so I think let's think about this. Any token can be made a smart token. Not all tokens are smart tokens. And so for a token to become a smart token, it requires an extra layer. Um, so you're looking at companies like Smart Token Labs who have created new standards to make these things happen. In fact, EIP 5169 was just put forward and adopted to do this exactly, which allows a smart contract to now call out to an external place to have additional logic. So you now start to have the ability for programmable user interfaces for GUIs. So tokens can now have GUIs. So, so you can start to have things pass what is programmed inside of a smart contract already. Good example. Let's say that you want to have a token, and that token needs to have um, it needs to be globalized, meaning no matter what and who puts it in their wallet, it needs to automatically pop up and fire in the native language. And we want to have a very specific look and feel based on each language that it needs to fire into. We could add an additional layer of technology or script or logic on top of that, that smart contract that then enables that to happen so it can carry it along with it. Cam, Matthew mentioned an EIP. You know, For some of our listeners, I feel like this is kind of a, a new concept of like, how do standards actually get set? Like, what does that mean? Can you talk through like, what is the process uh, of an EIP for someone that's not in this, this ecosystem right now? Absolutely. So Ethereum is a completely decentralized network. And in part of that, you know, when it was first built, there, you know, was created this room for improvement, or at least that's how decentralized networks should operate, right? People who are using this technology should be able to continue to update it or propose updates. So an EIP stands for an Ethereum Improvement Proposal. Anyways, what that means is that anyone who's a developer in the community, you know, has an idea, you know, really has the technology to be able to do this, will write a proposal. And when something's a proposal, people can adopt that. People can use that within their technology. For example, EIP 6551, that's a newer Ethereum improvement proposal that allows NFTs to have these backpack wallets or create token bound accounts. And, you know, that's being talked about as an ERC 6551, which, you know, for some projects they use that name, but really it's still a proposal versus, you know, other proposals are, you know, being adopted as actual smart contract standards. So the same thing goes for 721. That's a popular Ethereum smart contract that a lot of NFT projects use. So it's a way to continue to update the network. You know, it's really true to this decentralized mission of Web3, where people are able to add to this protocol and give their input about things they'd like to see, how they'd like to leverage this technology. You know, people have so many ideas about how to create these. So it's really cool to see that smart tokens originated from an Ethereum improvement proposal. And it was recently approved, which is awesome. Yeah, that's the governing way to do things on a decentralized manner. Uh, I wanted to kind of double click into the types of uh, 
potentially programmatic business rules that can exist in in smart tokens because one of the things that we argue a lot is that technology can't be regulated business activity can and that means that within technology that is within a technology there's now a business rule that represents a action or a transfer of property or even a small like Mike Matthew exemplified a small change in you know the graphic and user interface. These might be simpler, but are there any particular regulatory or legal implications that we can't, at least for now, foresee or, or, or envision in the future that these rules within the rules are going to have to come into play in terms of where these tokens can exist and how they can be uh, utilized by some of the end users? Right. So what we're talking about is we're talking about applications, not currencies and not collectibles, right? So one of the biggest issues that we've seen and I've seen, I've worked with all of the major Fortune 500 Web3 teams. The biggest issue every one of them has currently is the regulations, is the idea of a token is already considered an SEC as a security. So people are really worried about, you know, what is the actual implications of this from a regulation standpoint? When we start to think about these things as applications and of themselves, it's really just the next era of how we think about digital service delivery. We had websites and we served information and business services and websites. Then we started to move to apps because we can now do those things on mobile devices and without the internet. This is just the next era of digital service delivery of how we think about delivering those services. So if we look at it through those lenses, it's not necessarily about how do we regulate smart tokens because we're really not looking at them through the lens of currencies and we're not looking at them through the lens of ownership and rights. We're looking at them through the lens of an application. Um, so it's really just a delivery of service. Something I want to jump in on I do think that there is some implication for cryptocurrencies, though, because this whole idea of smart tokens originated in DeFi in the Bancor protocol, which is a popular DeFi protocol in 2017, you know, as a way to leverage this technology to protect these tokens from, you know, a liquidity risk so they would be able to trade automatically. You know, that's really what the smart contract allows these tokens to do. So, Already, I have a lot of thoughts about DeFi regulation. I think that's kind of the next step for regulators to really try to pick apart and understand because DeFi inherently is so anti-regulation. You know, this is decentralized finance. It's completely the opposite of all the financial systems that work in this world that we live in. So I feel like there's going to be some type of scrutiny around, you know, projects that utilize these tokens, you know, if you have something that's able to make these automatic transactions or essentially has a mind of its own as to how it goes about, you know, moving these tokens back and forth, I think that's something that'll be interesting to watch out for. Just thinking about these as applications rather than, you know, tokens in a general sense, is there a level of scarcity? Is that part of the feature is to say, oh, there are only a thousand of these applications that can exist? Would anyone ever trade one of these applications? Would you ever sell or transfer? Or this is taking a token, taking blockchains and, and wallets, but just trying to use it as an application platform you know, to run logic instead of having any inherent value in the token itself, because as many people want to run the application can run the application. It's not like it's scarcity that only a thousand people can run it. Does, does that make sense? Am I thinking about it the right way? No, it's, it's, a, it's a really good question. So, and, and back to Cam's point, let's move past this idea of DeFi, right? If we want Web3 to take over the world, we have to realize DeFi is only one segment, 
right? When we start to think about, back to the comment, my mom is not going to crypto. The majority of the world is not going to crypto in the way that we think, right? Even if we make wallets as easy as possible, there's still all the other aspects of this idea of cryptocurrency. So what we need to think about is how do we actually move Web3 to the masses? It's how do we solve existing business problems? It's not about tokens as an asset class. It's about tokens as applications. And so if we move through this idea of an asset class, that's currencies, that's collectibles, that's where scarcity mindset and those other things that you brought up, Kai, that's where those things play. To the 99.9% of the general consumer and the general public, that's not what they want. They just want better digital experiences. And so we can tokenize experiences and give them better digital experiences. So when we think about this, we also then move past the world of blockchain and we get into the world of off-chain, right? And we start to think about attestations. Like the three biggest problems that Web3 faces are functionality, friction, and scale. And if we can think about this and smart tokens allow us to solve those three problems. Because we can now start to say, if we want everything to be tokenized, a receipt, a receipt is not an asset. It does not need to live on the blockchain. If we want to have that ticket example with the airline ticket, that is an attestation that doesn't have to live on the blockchain. And the, the majority of companies don't want that to live on the blockchain because they don't want to expose their entire customer base and put it in a public database or a public ledger. But they still want interoperability and decentralization so we can look at different types of token methodologies. So if we think about smart tokens, yes, any token can be a smart token. We've made DAI tokens a smart token, right? So you have the ability to go in and actually open up the DAI token inside of a, a, the Alpha wallet and actually do things with it without having a DAP. So you're interacting directly with the smart contract, not through a DAP. But then the whole world past asset class is really where the next wave of Web3 is, is when we start to tokenize everything and those things become applications and experiences. It's not about assets, it's about experiences. I like where that's going because one of my criticisms about the current state of tokenization is that we're notarizing existing assets in the real world onto a new technology. But what is the added functionality that we're bringing is just a notary that's decentralized and public, you know, for, for, for others to see. And with that, it seems to me that we start moving away from that notarization and creating the possibility of, you know, other than just self-liquidating assets, but assets that they're built in with functionality that can go the distance and maybe remove some of that uh, friction that we currently have in overall UX and crypto. But one question to kind of try and wrap up this current state of affairs is blockchains have inherent limitations in terms of scalability, as you said, with the whole the gas fee. So if it's an on-chain standard, it's going to probably be subject to execution fees as any other uh, type of uh, programmable asset that's running on the blockchain. In terms of that scenario, how, how do you compare that between the traditional token formats to what smart tokens will enable and does it speak to certain to a certain extent to the you know the recent developments on account abstraction and and, and you know payout contracts and all of that uh, new set of features for for account abstraction is is are these connected do they need each other can smart tokens abstract that shortcoming by itself yeah, so it's a great question. So first off, abstract account abstraction or abstracted accounts, um, you know, the EIP Cam brought up earlier, super awesome, right? It really makes, it removes a lot of the big issues of friction, right? Um, you know, wallets and all those ideas and aspects, you know, but as we kind of move forward and think about what else is possible, it's not that, first off, let's take one big step and say Web3 does not have to be on the blockchain, 
right? So that number one is we can start to think about off-chain tokens and attestations. An attestation is a Web3 standard. We don't have to worry about abstracted accounts if we start to use those because we're now starting to use email and we can use Apple wallets and Google wallets, right? So as we start to, they're not connected, so they don't have to be. And then it really just opens up a new world of functionality past what those things could do. And I think the last big thing here is EIPs are great, but as we move forward in time, there are going to be way too many functionalities that we're going to want to program into a smart contract that then, then we are possible to have EIPs created and adopted to make it standards. So when we start to think about smart tokens, smart tokens really use an interface. They use a middleware that connects, you know, that add an additional layer of logic on top of a token so that any third-party service can automatically read that and it gets pulled through. So rather than having to worry about creating and proposing standards, we can use this essentially this middle layer to cover infinite different types of scenarios. So it's a scale methodology. So any web service can now start to in, you know, compose and bring tokens in and have them be an inter interoperable into any experience without having to worry about you know, infinite EIPs. So I think there's, there's a couple of different ways to think about that. That's really cool. That's really cool. And, and then we start to move more towards that web 2.5 in terms of the overall technology stack, but to the end user is a complete web three wrapper that we can you know, start to ignore because that's just how, how the way uh, things work now. So that kind of puts a, a, a great you know, wrapping on, on this first section of the show. We're going to take a quick break here to hear from our sponsors, and we're going to be right back. This episode is brought to you by Visa, one of the world's leaders in digital payments. Crypto has opened up a new world of possibilities, and Visa's helping everyone take part. Consumers can now enjoy the freedom and flexibility of using their Visa crypto link cards for everyday purchases at millions of Visa-accepting merchant locations around the world. Join us in this new money movement. Learn more at visa.com forward slash crypto. 200 trillion. No, that's not the number of times we've heard the letters AI this year. That's the estimated dollar value of residential property worldwide. The opportunity is massive and the space is ripe for disruption. So why does financial services keep getting mortgage offerings so wrong? Digitizing outdated processes has only led to complex, opaque, and exhausting user journeys that make the prospect of buying a home even scarier. The answer to this problem? Understand your customers' jobs to be done and meet them at their pain points with embedded, truly digital solutions. Partner with businesses to simplify and accelerate the home buying process. That's where the future is. Ready to take the first step? Visit 11fs.com ventures and let's get to work. So welcome back. So in the previous part, we covered the basics, the what, the how, the why of smart tokens. And now it's time for our favorite part, which is let's take a look into the future. What does smart tokens mean for Web3 as we go forward? I'm handing it over to you guys so we can start drilling into that. Yeah, maybe to start, Kim, this, this word gets thrown out a lot in, in composability uh, and the benefits that tokens can have for composability. How do you just think about, you know, for someone new to this space, why is composability important and, and what's like an example of composability? And then I want to talk more about how smart tokens you know, interact with it. Yeah, so absolutely. Composability, that's something that a lot of people are thinking about. I think with these different EIPs that are coming out, it's very interesting to look at, you know, almost like this nested structure, kind of how we think about different assets belonging to different assets, how we transact. You know, composability is just something 
inside another, inside another, however you want to identify that thing that owns whatever. Or maybe it's multiple things. You know, it really depends on what that original asset is. And, you know, I think that it's really interesting in the concept of ownership, you know, if this, like, let's say the smart token, is the smart token owning the actual app itself or is the user who owns the smart token owning the app itself? I mean, I think it's very interesting and really comes back to this conversation about decentralization. So that's how I think about it. I like the the Simon Taylor, shout out shout out to Simon, used to always say there's, there's kind of one element of, of composability of imagine in financial services if anything that Bank of America built, Wells Fargo could immediately use. And so there's both this kind of open source connotation to composability but then there's also this notion of remixing of it's not just, oh, you could take anything anyone else built, but you can then build on top of it like there are these Lego blocks. Um, but now when we get to smart tokens, uh, Matthew, are these by default open source? You know, Are these applications, if I want to write an application, I'm putting it in a smart token, does that mean I'm open sourcing that application and then anyone else can read what that application does and then you know they could take it and remix it and do something else to it? Is that part of the value prop or that's kind of, it, it's a choice that a developer has? Yeah, it's a good, good question. Let's start with the first question of composability, right? So I, I think one of the things I'll, I'll challenge everybody to do is think past DeFi. And so let's, let's think to the masses and let's go to the future. And so when we go to the future and we say composability, we need to think about composability of services, not just composability of assets. Let me give you a really simple way to think about this. Let's say that you have an insurance token, right? So if, one step back before that. Right, so like, let's just go through the history of digital service delivery. We had websites, then we went to apps, and now we're talking about smart tokens as the method of digital service delivery. So now think about through the lens of that when we think about composability. So let's say we have an insurance token, and that insurance token is a standard NFT as we know it. And it can say, listen, we can prove that this person has this level of insurance. So let me, let me put you in a scenario. This is a real scenario. You are going to sign up to be an Uber driver, and you're on step 39, of 40 steps. And it says, you have to prove to me that you have insurance to sign up to be an Uber driver. Now we can, if we have a token, we can instantly connect that token in that moment. And then Uber can say, hey, we got it. You have the correct insurance. Now, what do we mean by composability? Here's the next step. This is composable. Now Uber says you have insurance, but you don't have rideshare insurance. This is composability. In that moment, that token allows you to interface directly with the insurance company and update your insurance. You did not leave the Uber experience. That insurance business service was composed inside of the Uber signup flow. So when we think about composability, that is like how we want to start to think about composability. And why is that so radical? It's the first time that we've ever been able to break digital service delivery out of centralized services. Prior, you would have to either go to the website or to your application to do that function. But when that function is broken out into a token, it became composable to the moment and to the place where the consumer actually needs that service delivered. So it's a great example. Like I, I want to go one step deeper on the example. So what's actually happening to make that work of, is the insurance company giving permissioned access to Uber to write to that token to upgrade it? Like what does the insurance company have to do? What does Uber have to do? Like maybe unpack it and then Cam, Mauricio. Yes. So in this example, your insurance company has created a smart token and it's issued it to you, the consumer, right? You've put that in your Apple wallet or your email, however you want to put it. You don't have to hold it in a wallet. You can if you want to. 
The next is when you go to interface with Uber, Uber's site is able to then read that smart token, right? It's going to be able to then I'll read that, which just means it can read that external file. And so now anything is composable and interoperable. What is actually happening is the individual is interacting with the token. Uber is not interacting with the token. The individual interacts with the token and upgrades their insurance. And then that instantaneously can then be read by Uber's website and saying, okay, we now know that this person has upgraded the insurance. They have the correct level of insurance. So Uber is really just reading that token and validating it rather than actually doing any of the work. It's actually happening through the token directly. I was going to say this nested structure that I was talking about is way more of a tree. You know, <laughs> you're looking at the different functions within each of these ownership levels. But really, it's how can you take that ownership and how can you move it elsewhere? How can you make it interoperable? And interoperability is something we talk about all the time. And it feels like smart tokens really give some value and substance to that. Yeah, you pair that the nesting with the composability, meaning you can actually program something you on top of the other programmable something and the permissionlessness and the fact that you're now moving on-chain and off-chain with attestation, not only that you're solving that friction, but you're probably creating opportunity for some other developers that are in other blockchains to composably interoperate. That is freaking beautiful. And it's, and it's completely removed from the fact that we are over-financializing the internet. So you can also start to think of, there's two sides to a smart token. There's the creation of a smart token, but you also have the ability to read a smart token, right? And so there's the, the two flip sides to that. Once you have a site that can start to interact and read smart tokens, you can now start to do cross-chain functionality without having to worry about building bridges. And so that's when you can start to get into some really cool things. And that's when we start to talk about interoperability, right? You did something on a Polygon game and now you're going to be rewarded on some other type of chain without that service having to build bridges. And so you can get into interoperability and composability very quickly. Hence, that's why we think this is really going to open up the next wave of what tokenization will be. And sadly, it's not going to be as sexy as the last two, because this is about user experience rather than financial gains. And so I think like we all have to keep that in mind as well. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more with that. Yeah. And the good point is like this is probably the opportunity that we have as, as you know, in the technology industry to finally become customer-centric, because when we talk about customer centricity, and Matt, you, you've been at Salesforce, it's looking into the data that's available in Salesforce and calling that customer centricity. So if I'm a user of sale, a company using Salesforce, all my customer data that's there, it's what speaks to me as customer centricity. Now we're breaking that barrier. We're going to the open world on-chain and off-chain, and we're actually looking into the one customer experience that we care about. And everyone that's going to have any relationship with that customer, can not only leverage from the data that they have about the customer, but also all of the other data that is now on chain and available through however many smart tokens are there or tokens that are there uh, about that either that customer or that wallet's customers, uh, as you said, Matthew, uh, and then create a hyper-customized version of whatever the experience they're trying to offer. Finally, because... You know, customer centricity has been around for so many years, and I don't think we've achieved that, you know, to the customer's satisfaction. But maybe to the companies that are providing, they think that they are customer-centric. Maybe now they can. To take a step back, like, when I hear the word tokenization, and I feel like, you know, for most of our listeners, it's kind of synonymous for most people with it means bringing something on-chain. It's taking an asset and bringing it on-chain. You're saying... Matthew, that this isn't, this doesn't need to bring everything on chain. 
And so can we unpack the notion of attestations and how an attestation would work interacting with a blockchain versus actually bringing an entire token or entire program and to having every node on the Ethereum network you know, compute the entire application uh, and all the functionality within it? That's a great question. And I think this is really one of the heart of the issues of what we're all trying to experience right now is, the, is this learning. Um, so let's take, st take one step back. Everyone that is in this world, and I'm going to throw this Web3 world together, really kind of came into this world through one of two waves. Unless you're just an OG, you probably came in through the 2017 ICO craze or through the 2021 NFT craze. Both of those were financially driven crazes, and both of those were focused on either an asset class or an ownership class, the NFT, right? A fungible or non-fungible. So the whole world and I was part of this, right? I was—I used to be—I used to understand or think that if it wasn't on chain, it wasn't Web three. But that's actually not true. Web three is about decentralization and individual ownership of data. It's not just necessarily about blockchain. So there's a difference between tokenization and securitization. The tokenization really just means that we are using tokens to be the connection point. So if you just want to think about this in a simple diagram, if we have two databases, the way those two databases function is they usually build an API and share data back and forth to each other. They sh that's how the data flows. Tokenization means we empower the individual with the data and the individual becomes the integration point themselves. And so now you get to bypass all of the major issues of GDPR and these different types of database integrations to solve existing Web2 problems. It's not about an asset. It's about an integration point. It's much more about data than it is about anything else. And so like, if we just think about that for step one, step two is then let's look at what are the major barriers that are stopping us from getting mainstream adoption. If you go to, and I've already mentioned this, but if you go to a major organization and you, it, all major CEOs believe in Web3 as a primitive. They just haven't found how they want to use it yet because there's a couple of problems. One is if they create a token, their legal team is going to say, you've opened yourself up to too much risk. Don't do it. It doesn't matter if it's fungible or non-fungible. It's one of the biggest barriers to issue right now is the legal risk of issuing an on-chain token. Number two is those teams don't want to do that because they don't want to put their entire customer database in a public database. They don't want to open themselves up to vampire attacks, rightly so. Right. And so you've got like a lot of big barriers. Now, when we start to then say, how can we then abide by the ethos of Web3 and not have to deal with those problems? You can now start to look at tokenization of off-chain tokens, whereas it's an attestation. An attestation is a Web3 standard. If you look at the actual technical aspects, it looks exactly like a regular token. However, it's not signed by a miner. That's the difference. It doesn't have a double spend problem that needs to be solved. If I am a company and I issue you a receipt and I want to use a Web3 technology, the question is, does a receipt have a double spend problem? The answer is no, it does not. So why would we put that on a blockchain, right? So when we start to then open the aperture and say, well, what are other tokenized methods? You get into attestations. Not only does that then solve those major issues, it's not an on-chain token, so there is no business risk. Two, it's not an on-chain token. There's no consumer friction because it doesn't have to live in a wallet. Number three, it's not in a public database. So you can't do a vampire attack. And number four, it abides by all of the major ethos of Web3. So when I say my mom won't crypto, she will never crypto. But my mom will have an attestation in the next 24 months. I completely agree with that. And I think something interesting that I've noticed from companies that are trying to tap into Web3 or, you know, companies that are Web3 native that are helping other companies that, you know, are Web2 make the transition into Web3, you know, I've heard sentiments about, you know, some of these strategies, people don't want to alienate the Web3 natives 
but they want to progress into this newer world of onboarding people, you know, onboarding the masses. And honestly, to onboard the masses, I mean, the masses aren't sitting in Discord and on Twitter and transacting, you know, on their MetaMask every second of the day. The masses are people who have no idea what this is. And Web3 being for the masses really means that it's off chain. I mean, I think that's a fascinating point. And I think that it's something that these Web3 natives are probably really against, maybe not, but probably some people who've been so involved and so, you know, die hard on chain, everything on chain, self-custody, decentralization. But, you know, you still have the decentralization if it's off chain. I think that's something that people need to remember. It's interesting you say this because there's this uh, Homer Simpson meme where he's, you know, backpaddling to the bush, right? I always use that meme when people start talking about some of these things because when the technology works, it fades into the background. So we, we ought to go and be like Homer in that meme and pull back into uh, the bush and, and just disappear. Like if we can make this feels like, feel like magic, we've done it. Like we've, we've, we've made this work, right? So I think that's, that's super, um, super important. And on the other end, uh, as, you, as you talk about, you know, the DJs or the crypto natives or Web3 natives, how many can we be, I'm one of them, how many can we be to make this massive adoption. It's going to take forever in, in generations to turn everyone into a degen. Is that the best we can do for humanity? Let's just make stuff simple and, and onboard the people who want it on the basis of their user experience, not on the basis of over-financializing the internet. Very people will gain if we over-financialize everything. And this is about democratization, and we need to get there at some point. Yeah, I mean, because so many people, so many DGENs came into the space in the first place because of the over-financialization. They came in to make money. I mean, Matthew, exactly what you were saying, 2017 or 2021, you know, people came in to make money. And now it's not really about that. Still is in some part of it, but this new era of Web3 is taking that part out, which is scary for people to really embrace. Yeah. I mean, honestly. I mean, this might sound funny, but it's time for us to grow up and it's time for us to solve existing Web2 problems, right? If we can't go into a business and solve an existing business problem, they don't, you know, I, I did the research, right? I set up and I sat down with the 15 largest companies in Web3, right? Name all the big players from Adidas to Sony to Unilever. And I asked them, what are their problems? No one has a Web3 problem. Everyone got into Web3 to solve one of two basic problems they already had. I need to attract new customers. I need to retain existing customers and I would create better digital experiences. That's it. They don't have Web3 problems. So we have to help them solve those problems. And when we solve those problems, to Mauricio's point, that's when we win. When those consumers use the technology and they don't know, no one says MP3, we say songs, right? In the future, no one's going to say Web3. They're just going to say, I just connected my you know, pass or whatever, whatever the word they're going to use and they will get the services they want. So I think like that's the next evolution here is like literally solving existing business problems. And there are many that we can solve. Yes, there is like DeFi problems that are solving the world problems, right? The unbanked, those are legit real problems, right? But I'm, if we wanna talk about how do we get the Web2 enterprise and the Web2 people and our moms and our friends that are not DGENs to experience this world and really have this take off, I agree with all the points. We have to, it's, it's past DeFi. So how do you think about private key management? Because my understanding, of, if, if I'm following you correctly, so you know, the use cases you're talking about, they don't require a blockchain because there's no double spend problem. Um, you know, signing that you own, you have a certain type of insurance, like that, that's not a double spend thing. But to conduct a signature and to have the consumer control the data, there needs to be some notion of a private key 
uh, is the idea that the private key can be a form of cryptography that is familiar that you know they have within you know Gmail and existing services today and doesn't have to be compatible with the signature schemes that are required for on-chain transactions? Or how do you see like private keys to the masses if you envision this world of ownership of data and the consumer signing with these attestations? You know, it, it doesn't require a crypto wallet per se. The private key, if you lose it, I assume it's not that they're you've just lost all your money. But what? How, how do you see private key management playing out in this world? I mean, that's a really good question. Um, when you look at an attestation, they still use private and public key pairs. They're still using cryptography. They're just using it in a different format, right? So we're using essentially we can store these keys inside of a local storage. Or you can store them in lots of different places. They could be stored in any Web2 place, right? They could go into an email and that goes into local storage. And in those scenarios, you're not really having to worry about this double signature. You're just really validating that you're there. Good example, right? So we essentially, um, this company Smart Token Labs tokenized and created one of the first open loyalty programs and did this for the Ethereum Foundation for DevCon, uh, DevConnect, and EdCon, right? The, the developer Ethereum events. So the regular ticketing service gave a ticket. On top of that, this company issued a smart token, which is just an attestation. And that gave all of those people access to an open loyalty program. First off, what is open loyalty? That means that anybody in the world can now create value for any of these token holders. So old school method was event has to get sponsors, then you get a little sponsor package, yada, yada, yada. What we now see in these worlds are anyone can now create a reward and an offer. Now to receive that reward of the offer, you have to prove that you have that ticket or that attestation. So you would go to that site, just a little pop-up would say, do you have that? And you just, if you have it, you just say, can they read it? It's just a simple click. So it's not signatures as we think about them. It's not private key management as we've thought about it in the past. They're really just living in different places and being managed in different ways. Awesome. Oh my God, my head is exploding. So uh, we need to wrap up. We could go on forever. We, we need to wrap up. And um, I'm happy we, we, we're, we, have the, we had this discussion because it was uh, long overdue and super exciting. So we'll, we're probably going to have to come back and revisit this <laughs> at some point in the future. So thank you all, all so much for joining us here. Um, where can people find more find more about you and your companies and what you're up about? Uh, let's go with you, Cam. So you can start by reading Coindesk.com. You can look up my articles, Cam Thompson. That's me. I'm also on Twitter. Actually, I'm on X. Do we call it X now? Oh, my God. I have the oh day. Oh, my gosh. Okay, <laughs> well. I, I'm still I, called it Twitter. <laughs> I am on the former bird app, Twitter, the former bird app, at Cam G. Thompson. I post a lot of my thoughts and articles, little blurbs here and there. So that's where you can find me. I won't go into all the social platforms. but And your podcast yeah. as well, right? Yes. Also, I am the co-host of Carpe Consensus, a Coindesk podcast about crypto news, which Mauricio recently joined us on. So you can listen there once a week. We have some hot takes and fun chatting about what's going on in this crazy crypto world. <laughs> awesome. Thank you, Cam. Uh, Matthew, how about you? Yeah, so uh, you can find me on the X. It's so weird to say, Cam. Uh, you can find <laughs> me on, on the X at M Sweezy, S-W-E-E-Z-E-Y. And if you want to learn more about Smart Tokens, the company I advise is called Smart Token Labs. And you can go to the new project they're launching, which is called Smart Layer. So smartlayer.network. And you can learn about how you can create, issue, and then uh, read it and compose Smart Tokens. Thank you so much, man. Uh, Kai? I'm still saying on Twitter, at Kai Sheffield. That's just, it's, it's, it's too, hard to, too hard to change. And uh, visa.com slash crypto. You can find me at Xerox Mauricio at the Twitter X, whatever they're going to call it next week. Um, LinkedIn and Mauricio Magaldi and also Mauricio Magaldi at 11fs.com.
Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode. We've loads in the works, and we're so excited to be talking to you about crypto and blockchain. If you can't wait till the next episode, take a look at the many previous episodes and get yourself properly immersed in the world of crypto. And if you really love it, please leave us a review. It helps us to make it better and helps other people find the show. As always, if you want to join the conversation, find us on social media. Just search for 11FS or a Blockchain Insider or email us at podcasts at 11FS.com. This is all for today. Stay rare, stay weird. LFG.